Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm happy that you're all here today. Can you believe it is already December? I am looking out my window and it's snowing, so I can definitely believe it's already December, but I hope you had a great holiday and I hope you got a lot of your essay work done for those of you who are seniors who have not finished all of your application work. The time is ticking. Um, We have a listener Q&A for you today, and that's coming up a little bit later. But before we get to that, we're actually going to be talking about what we're defining as niche colleges. Um, It's not really a technical term. It's one that um, we are using here at at College Coach and on the podcast. Um, And joining me for that conversation is Ben Baum, who's Vice President of Enrollment at St. John's College, which we would consider a niche college. Hi, Ben. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining the show. For those of you who are regular listeners, Ben has been on the show before, but this is the first time he's joining us to really talk about St. John's. Um, So why, in your opinion, is St. John's considered a niche college? It's, as I mentioned, not really a formal or technical term. So what does that really mean to you when you hear that term? Sure. And, uh, and I sometimes use that term. Sometimes I'll refer to us as being distinctive or different or unique. Um, I was actually just listening to a different podcast where I heard Malcolm Gladwell, who's such an interesting thinker on so many topics, including higher ed, refer to St. John's as being among the most distinctive. That's the word he used. <laughs> okay. But we do things differently I, um, from most of higher education. Uh, and we aren't a fit for every student. And I think that's something that we know about ourselves and that we embrace. And, and many colleges out there um, are trying to appeal to every single student who might come through that door. And yet for us, we have a really distinctive identity and we um, are true to that identity. And for us, that's all wrapped up in this curriculum. We have what we call a great books curriculum. Curriculum. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for students who are going to be a fit for this curriculum. And that isn't necessarily every student that's out there. Uh, some students are really drawn to what we do, which involves reading a lot of great books, coming to classes that are small and having discussions about them. It's entirely interdisciplinary. So the books include literature and philosophy. They include math and science. Uh, and for some students who know there's only one thing they want to study to the exclusion of everything else, we aren't a fit and that's okay. For a student who isn't a big fan of reading, we also won't be a fit and that's (laughs) also okay. Uh, And that I think is one of the things that makes us a true niche is that we we aren't in the world to appeal to every single student that's out there. We're trying to find those students who are excited about what we do and really wanna be a part of this endeavor together. Right. It's interesting that you say that because it does feel like most colleges are trying to be all things to all people. And even those that have traditionally been a little bit more niche have I've witnessed certainly over the last maybe 10 years or so, there's one particular school that comes to mind that I won't name here that has gone from being really focused on having a very specific student body to just trying to be as selective as possible. And I think to the detriment of the institution, because 
they're no longer attracting that very specific group of students they used to attract. And instead, it's sort of like, hey, if you really are obsessed with getting into a school that turns away most of their applicants, I guess this can be one of my choices, right? And there's something lost there. But that is not what we are here to discuss necessarily. I would love a little bit more about, you know, what defines a book as great? How does it make the list of books that students wind up reading if they attend St. John's? Yeah, that, and that's maybe the toughest question you could possibly <laughs> ask a Johnny. We, um, we, our curriculum moves back to 1937. And so in 1937, uh, we had some real reformers in, um, in the educational reform movement across a number of different colleges who were really interested in, um, in putting away notions of looking at textbooks and going to lectures and passively receiving information mm-hmm. and instead having students go back to original sources and for themselves um, suss out the ideas from these great authors and to make conclusions about those ideas on their own. And so um, and so 1937 was this key juncture for us when we yeah. adopted this curriculum. And many of the books you see on our curriculum are reflective of that moment. Um, there are, in, 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 in when we first were founded, there were no authors, of course, who could have been more recent than 1937. Yeah. And so over the years since then, we're continually adding new authors and we're rethinking the, um, the books that are already in the program. Um, some of these books are timeless and they're never going to go anywhere. I mean, we've been talking about Homer's Iliad and Odyssey for 3,000 years, and yes. we will continue to talk about those books for 3,000 years. We know they're great because they've influenced so many other authors who have followed them in mm-hmm. all sorts of disciplines. Um, other authors, though, maybe more controversial or they may be great in some ways, but, you know, really flawed in other ways. And when we talk about great, we don't mean um, good necessarily. What we mean is often this, um, this expression that we use that the authors and the books should be both timeless and timely. We're looking for books that stand the test of time, that they might be 3,000 years old, and yet they still speak to us today. And that timeliness is about the issues we grapple with as human beings, whether they're scientific or political or um, or psychological, whatever those issues are, we want authors who speak to them in our modern capacity. And so, um, and so as we, you know, every year passes, our community, our students, our faculty are always discussing the books that are in the program, and everyone um, vying for the book they believe that must be added because it is so essential to understanding the human experience. And yet anything we add to the program means that something has to come out because it is packed. There's over 200 books. Right. And so, um, and so we make tough decisions sometimes to either not include a new book or to include a new book and remove an old one. And more recently, you can see some of the authors we've added have been people like Toni Morrison, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, we've added more um, recent books in um, in biology and in physics. Um, we've um, in some of the elective classes we read. We read um, authors in computer science, like Alan Turing, the mm-hmm. founder of the field of computer science. And so you see these at places in the late twentieth century, in particular, where we're starting to add in order to kind of round out all of these authors who are great and yet need to speak to a new set of experiences that all of us are having today in the modern world. Well, I mean, so many questions and we don't even have time for all of them, but I have to imagine, and certainly feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that in 1937, the list of great books was written by mostly men and probably mostly white men. And so that has probably necessitated quite a bit of, you know, thinking outside of that fairly narrow framework. 
One question that I have for you is, you mentioned there are 200 books on the list. Does every student who graduates and goes through four years read all 200 of those? They, they do. Um, and Interesting. So for most, in most respects, all of our students are doing this curriculum together as a shared experience. And so you're starting freshman year, roughly chronologically in the ancient Greek world, you're starting with Homer, with reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And then over time, you're reading into the modern world. And so, um, and like I said, initially, this is interdisciplinary. And so we um, often think of great books and we think of great literature, but what we talk about includes history and philosophy. It includes politics and law. It includes math and science. We're reading original authors in all of those fields. And so, um, and so from freshman year in the ancient Greek world to senior year, um, coming into the modern world, uh, you do see this real growth of diversity of the authors across the program. I think it's an area we still have a lot of work to do on. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned earlier, in 1937, the curriculum looked um, much more um, male and white than it does today. But I think we still are working to make progress on that question. And, and you see it in, reflected in many of the authors that we read um, more um, in the more contemporary world towards senior year. I mentioned uh, one of our more uh, new authors is Toni Morrison, um, but you also see that kind of diversity reflected in uh, people like uh, people like W.B. Du Bois, who spoke on our campus in the 1950s. Um, you see it in James Baldwin. Um, you see it across our graduate program as well, where we have a graduate program in Eastern classics, which focus on um, great books from the traditions of China, India, and Japan. And so, um, so I said, for the most part, people are sharing all of this together. Right. Uh, and yet there are a few opportunities senior year and in junior year where students have an elective class. And so there's an opportunity for them to dive into a particular book or an author, or an idea they want to spend a little bit more time on. That might be different from what many of their peers are doing. And yet they're coming at that toward the end of their St. John's experience because it's all predicated on this foundation of having read all of these great authors who likely informed the ideas that um, that we think of by those more modern authors in the world we live in today. I mean, it's a totally, totally fascinating sort of approach to this level of education. And, all, you know, and I understand that it does, it has its roots in the way that education used to be for the few people who undertook a, a more rigorous education after kind of the basics were out of the way. I'm curious, does everyone have the same major? Do people major in different things? How does that piece work at St. John's? Yeah, there is, in fact, only one major at St. John's. Everyone graduates with the same degree, a Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Arts. And it's an interdisciplinary degree because we're studying all of these different subjects through reading these authors. And so, um, and that is very unusual. It's another yes. way I think some people would describe us as being a niche. Yes. Um, sometimes we um, we frame it this way, that if you were to try to, if you were to try to break our curriculum into more um, conventional pieces and ascribe majors and minors to them, you'd probably probably say every student at St. John's graduates with a double major uh, in philosophy and the history of math and science and a double minor in literature and classics. Mm -hmm. and so that is, you know, those four buckets 
encompass a lot of the curriculum. They're the biggest parts of the curriculum. And yet we still talk about our Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Arts as this interdisciplinary degree that really defies these conventional boundaries between disciplines. At any other college, you would go and there'd be departments and you'd have professors who have studied in that department who are teaching their specialty. And they may not know what's happening in the math department if they're in the English department. And yet at St. John's, all of our faculty teach across the curriculum. And so you may be someone with a PhD in English literature teaching a math class. And we want that, um, that diversity of um, viewpoint across all of our subjects and to break apart the disciplinary boundaries and make people think in this interdisciplinary way. Yeah. I mean, again, totally cool. Um but as you talk, I'm thinking this might be something I would be interested in doing as an adult would definitely not have been something for me as a teenager. It just not really would it wouldn't have fit the way that I learned or wanted to learn, probably more importantly. Um, and I'm curious not only who is drawn to the program, but also what do graduates do? As I know, many of our listeners are parents, um, you know, and they might think, wow, this is cool. But where does my kid go from here? Yeah, I mean, two really good questions. I think um, on the first question, the kind of student who's drawn to St. John's generally loves to read. Uh, they love ideas. They want to read about those ideas and they want to talk about them a lot. We have no lectures here. And so every single class will be a discussion about these books. Uh, so people who are excited for the reading and the discussing, that's a big piece of this puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle tends to be students who love ideas across disciplines. Uh, we're not a place where you can come and solely study literature or solely study politics. You're going to study those subjects, but you're gonna study them alongside all of these others, so, you know, really two dozen different subjects. And so, um, and so students tend to love lots of different subjects in high school and can't decide. They also really want to, um, they, they really want to explore these ideas in depth and be a part of an intellectual community that's sharing this experience together. I think that's actually one of the most exciting things about St. John's is the fact that students come here for the program. They're not coming um, because of our great athletic teams. They're not coming right. for the lazy river. They're, they're coming because they want to be a part of a community that is excited to talk about Plato and Homer and Toni Morrison as they are. Right. And, um, and that culture, I think, permeates every aspect of St. John's. What they do after they leave here, though, that might be something that we could talk about in a moment. Yes, I think that's probably, I mean, for sure, we want people who are thinking about this to know that, yes, this would be a fit for me. But I am curious about that. Like, where do you go from there? As an English major, I have my thoughts on where you go from there. And my my thought is probably wherever you want, right? You're not necessarily, you can't go work as an engineer tomorrow necessarily, because you might not have the credential that allows you to do so. But you could read, write, and think, and that prepares you for virtually every career that you could do. Yeah. I mean, our graduates, I think the hallmark of what they have leaving here is that they have learned to um, they've learned to grapple with really complex ideas. They've done it in an interdisciplinary way. They know how to communicate with their peers, both orally and in writing. We do a lot of writing. Mm -hmm. And so on the other side of this degree, you're someone who is prepared to tackle the problems of the modern world without having been prepared to 
for a specific career. And I think that's a pretty essential thing. I mean, we know that most graduates will leave college no matter where they go, and they will not work in the field that they majored in. And they will be dealing with problems that didn't exist when they were in college. And so who makes the best graduate to tackle these modern problems? It's not the person who's been trained to study one specific thing. It's the person who's been trained to think and to read and to write and to connect with peers. And um, and that skill set translates to all sorts of careers, of course. I think one of the biggest things you see emerging from St. John's will be students who are going to graduate school of all mm-hmm. sorts. I mean, we are one of the biggest producers of PhDs by percentage in the United States. Uh, we send, that's true in the humanities, it's true in the sciences as well. Uh, we send a lot of people on eventually to be teachers, whether that's um, in other universities, we have a lot of people who are professors, uh, but we also send a lot of people directly out of St. John's into teaching in high schools. Uh, we produce a lot of journalists, um, people right now I know at the Washington Post, at the um, at the New York Times. Um, Lydia Polgreen is um, a re- relatively recent grad who is a really prominent opinion writer at the New York Times. Uh, we have interesting career paths you wouldn't expect um, in, the, for instance, winemaking. Uh, one of the most important vineyards in Napa Valley was founded by a Johnny, Warren Vinyarski. And, um, and he is someone whose name you might not know, but you probably have heard of his wines because rather famously, it was his wines that won the competition in the 1970s of California wines versus French wines and really put all of California winemaking on the map. And so you see this extraordinary diversity in what our students are doing. Um, A lot of people have gone to law school, a lot of people who go on into business, uh, but we want that diversity because we want to be the kind of place where students are excited about ideas and bring that into all different career paths. Right. So none of what you said surprised me about what people end up doing. And, you know, for sure, there are people out there who understand and appreciate the liberal arts. And then there are people who are focused on college as a the next step in a specific career path that they're taking. And there's certainly room for everyone in this. And um, I think you've laid out pretty effectively the you know, the space that St. John's fills. And like you say, not trying to be everything to everyone. Um, There are specific students who are going to be drawn to what you do. Very quickly, because we're almost out of time, I did want to give a space for you to mention you have a new tuition model that I like a lot. um, And that in my winds up meaning that St. John's costs about what it would cost you if without financial aid um, to attend an out-of-state public. That's my experience is my son is in an out-of-state public. And when I looked at the price points, they're very similar to what St. John's is at right now. Tell us a little uh, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, St. John's has two campuses, which is another unusual thing about us. One campus in Annapolis, Maryland. That's our historic campus that, in fact, goes back to 1696. We're the third oldest college in the country. The other campus, Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, created in the 1960s. And both these campuses do the same program. Um, We're one place where students might move between the campuses. Uh, And as a result, we have the same financial model where, um, where we, in 2018, chose to lower our tuition from what had once been over $50,000 to what it is today, which is roughly $37,000. And that drop of tuition was 
predicated on a conversation we were having with our own alumni about college affordability and their own fear that at some point St. John's would become out of reach um, to the people who love it most. And so, um, so we did a lot of reflecting on this and, um, and chose to lower our tuition at the same time we started a capital campaign. And, and I'm happily now delivering the news that at this stage in our capital campaign, it gets, it gets close to its conclusion. We have raised over $300 million. Wow. And um, and that $300 million is going solely for the purpose of lowering our tuition to make the college more affordable for any student who applies and increasing the amount of need-based financial aid we also give out to ensure students from every background can afford this place. And we have a pretty extraordinary socioeconomic diversity at St. John's. We have students who come here who can afford our full tuition, um, and that is great. Um, we have other students who really could afford um, very little of it. And, um, and in fact, we have 23% of our students in the current freshman class who are Pell Grant recipients, uh, which is a real strong reflection of that socioeconomic diversity um, that is so essential to a college that is a discussion around the table where different viewpoints, different perspectives, different backgrounds have to inform the conversation about these great books. Yes. I love it. I love the, um, for our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about this, you can Google St. John's um, tuition program and it should pop up for you. But I love the philosophy behind it. And certainly I love the price point um, and the idea that let's get rid of merit aid, which really at the end of the day is just discounting. And let's focus on making it a reasonable price point for those who can afford it and then putting the emphasis on financial aid for those that can't. Um, ben, I so appreciate you joining us for the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're answering your questions so you know you don't want to go away because we might be answering your specific question. Um, we'll be back in just a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everyone. We are at that portion of the show where we're going to start answering your questions. I had to put my glasses on for this one because... (laughs) You guys are submitting long ones these days, so I need my glasses on to read them. Also, did anyone else notice that in the previous segment, I went from niche to niche and back again? Apparently, I like all the different ways that you can say that word. Anyway, um, joining me is my colleague, Shannon, who usually joins me for these Q&As. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? Good. Thank you. So Shannon's a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and BU, and she's going to handle what I consider the tough questions today. And Shannon, we're going to start with one for you. Okay. This comes to us from Lisa, who submitted it via our website. So for those of you wondering, how do I get my question answered? Well, you can post on Facebook. You can direct message us on Facebook. You can direct message us on Instagram. Um, you could send it in via email. And I'll give you that email address in a little bit. First, if we do not did not take out Parent PLUS loans at the start of the year, but my husband is currently unemployed and now we'd like to borrow, is it too late to take out for the spring of 2023? Would the, those loans be eligible to possibly be increased given new uh, economic situation if we appealed financial aid through the school? And lastly, I realize that student loan forgiveness currently only applies to loans taken out before June 30th, 2022. But do you think this will be extended to all loans taken out in 2022? No. Sorry, yeah. Shannon, go. <laughs> Commentary by Beth. Yeah, let's answer that first part. Uh, that last part first. And I totally agree with you. No, I do not expect that the um, recently announced and then pulled back loan forgiveness program yeah. is going to be expanded um, at all. Essentially, they announced it in the, the end of the summer saying they would forgive if you met 
certain income limitations, loans borrowed for in the past. Essentially, they were not giving the the green right. light for people to borrow new loans that would instantly be forgiven. Exactly. Um, that program is now in very much in a legal limbo. There were some challenges to the legality of the program. Um, some different in different courts, there are different cases, one of which found the program to be illegal. So that is the current status of the program, um, that it is not considered legal at this moment. That decision is being appealed by the uh, Department of Justice. So we will see what happens if that the loan forgiveness program comes back. But if it does, it will only be for loans borrowed. Um, prior to June 30th, 2022. I don't see any hope of, of it. Yeah, it, it will not apply to, to future loans. It would have to be a whole new discussion, new program in the future. And I would say a, a change of will in um, in the government to, to make that happen. I mean, it's the whole issue with student loan forgiveness in the first place, right? So Correct. if we're going to forgive some loans, what then happens in the future when people maybe borrow too much or, yeah, I mean, it's a whole exactly. philosophical that, conversation. Yeah, yeah that exactly. And that, that was a whole, a criticism of this program when it was just in the potential stages that it's a, you know, it's a Band-Aid. It, it right. helps the people who borrowed in the past, but it doesn't address underlying issues in the terms of the cost of college and why people have to get into excessive debt to um, to go to college, those issues are left unaddressed by this program. There are some other things that people are working on in, in the government. But short answer to Lisa's final question there is, is no. <laughs> um, to, to go back to, to the underlying issue with the, the PLUS loans, you can borrow a parent PLUS loan at any point during the academic year. So it's absolutely fine if you didn't borrow it all at the start of the year and you decide you need to borrow some money for the spring semester, absolutely fine. You can do that now. You probably want to get it done. Uh, give yourself you know, a week or two before the bill is due to just get all the paperwork processed just to make sure everything uh, goes through on time and you, you don't miss any uh, deadlines and get any late fees, but you can absolutely do that um, in the near future. In fact, you can borrow right up to the end of the academic year. So even if you paid that spring semester tuition bill and decided that you'd like to reimburse yourself with them, oh, maybe I should have borrowed, you can borrow yeah. the loan you know, the last day of the school year uh, to reimburse yourself. So yeah, that's absolutely no problem, Lisa. You can do that at any time. What you might want to do before pursuing that loan application is submit an appeal to the financial aid office to see if you could get any more grant money, which is obviously yeah. grants better than loans. That's free money. You don't have to pay back based on a change in circumstances. This is another thing you can do kind of throughout the school year. If you have a change in financial circumstances, bring it up to the financial aid office. Ask if they can reconsider if your financial aid package based on your change in circumstances. And certainly a parent that that was the primary breadwinner, losing a job is a big change to your financial circumstances. So you can submit that financial aid appeal, document the job loss, ask them if they could reconsider your financial aid package, potentially award you some more grant funding. Uh, they can say yes or no to that question. It may depend on you know what kind of funding the school has available, but I would give that a try first. If they don't come through with any grant money or not enough grant money and you need to borrow, you can submit that loan application again at any time. So that's no problem at all to borrow just for the spring semester. Right. 
And I mean, can we say it enough? Simply asking is not a problem. They're not going to say, I no, can't no. believe you're asking for more money. We're kicking your daughter out of college or your no. child out of college, or no. we're taking our <laughs> offer of acceptance back. It's just a question. And the answer could be no, but the answer could be yes. And right, exactly. Wouldn't yes. that be better? That's <laughs> such, such a good piece of advice for this whole process. When you have questions, don't be afraid to ask. Right. That's admissions officers, financial aid officers in general. They're nice people. They got into this line of work because they like helping students. Right. So don't never be afraid to ask questions. Exactly. Okay. So first question for you, Beth, um, comes from Ping. Um, I would like to hear your take on the following issue. It seems like the trend for college admissions nowadays is about a passion project and forming a nonprofit organization. Uh, she references one college counseling website that specifically talks about how they will walk you through creating your own nonprofit. Yuck. <laughs> as far yeah. as I'm concerned, Shannon's commentary. Um, my child has developed his own passion and is actively engaging in activities related to it. However, he sees many of his friends forming nonprofit organizations on the advice of external college coaches with the end goal of impressing admissions officers. My child does not care for it and sees it as rather pompous. I agree with your child. Uh, I feel that this whole nonprofit issue is reminiscent of the popular overseas volunteerism several years back. Do you know how admissions officers view such activities? Would my kid be at a disadvantage in relation to his many friends with nonprofits under their names? Thanks. Okay. There's a lot going on here. Yes. I think the first thing that I would do is go all the way back to, well, one thing that Ping is not sharing is the ultimate goal, you know, sort of what the colleges are that, you know, her son is considering. And I would say that the vast majority of colleges that are out there are not even necessarily paying too close attention to what you do. They just want you to be doing some things outside of the classroom. Yeah. And I, so my guess is that Ping's child is looking to, hoping to go to one of those more selective institutions where they're turning away a big percentage of their applicant yeah. pool. And in those applicant pools specifically, the goal there is to stand out and not blend in. So anytime you're doing what you do is mostly what everyone else around you is doing, it's not going to be that exciting. Um, I don't know where this idea came from that like starting a nonprofit is the thing to do. I do think I saw that on on a website where they have specifically calling that out as the key um, I don't think it's the key. If it was the key, I suppose we would have all of our students focused <laughs> on doing something like that. But the key is there is no key. If there was a key, right. we wouldn't need this podcast, right? We wouldn't right. need to figure that out. Maybe we would need it on the paying side of things, but we certainly wouldn't really need it on the admission side of things. So um, if those of you listening and paying you and your son are thinking like, this doesn't seem like this is the answer, you're right. It's not the answer. Um, what colleges, especially as you get more selective, what takes an application from being, um, you know, one that is fine, where it's clear that the student can do the work to a compelling application that you, where you're like, wow, this is a kid we want on our campus is a sense of authenticity and a sense of real focus and interest 
typically in one area, not necessarily in one area. You know, there are certainly students who are doing a lot of things and doing a lot of things well, and they will make the cut at some of those most selective schools. But at the, at the very selective level, a lot of those students are what I would call more um, well lopsided than well-rounded. And they have something that they really love. It could be academic and it could be extracurricular. And an example that I often give would be a student who's really into music. And so they play an instrument. They take lessons in that instrument. They play for the school orchestra. They pay for the pit orchestra when the school is doing a musical. They and a couple of friends get together and play together and maybe they go and they have paid gigs where people pay and come money pay money and come and see them or they might also do some volunteer gigs where they go as a band and they play at like a senior citizen home or at a fundraising event but their services are donated um, and free Um, the student might also write compose music or might be um, you know might conduct an orchestra. I mean, there's so many different ways in which you could get involved in music, but what it all ends up becoming, if the student is doing it deeply enough and achieving at a high enough level, what we would call a distinguishing excellence. So simply starting a nonprofit in and of itself, like, okay, I mean, tell me what else, like what else is a student bringing to the table? Also, what is the nonprofit achieving? So if a bunch of kids are just opening up these nonprofits and getting their friends to join them and they're just saying, oh, look at this thing that we do. Okay, but you know, you need hard numbers. You need how much money are you raising? What are you accomplishing? How many people are part of this organization? Will it continue on when you leave? So if 10 students from one class all created their own nonprofits, you know, what's the likelihood that those will stand the test of time when the student graduates? And if they aren't going to, then they're probably already not particularly impressive. Um, You know, so is it the same thing as paying a lot of money to go and build a village in the Caribbean and then spending three weeks on the beach enjoying yourself after you did that? Probably not. But at the same time, it's not particularly, again, just by the virtue of, oh, I started a nonprofit to me is not interesting in and of itself. Um, I would need to know way more about what that adds to the package. And I think my overall overarching message here is to anyone who's listening, not just paying for you and your son, is that colleges reward students who have their you know, their own goals and interests that they are deciding on what those are. And they're not letting somebody else say, oh, it's got to be this, right? They're trying to think, oh, this is what colleges want to see. And colleges don't really know what they want to see until they see it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) is kind of how I would categorize it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like the example you gave with the musician, there's this sort of long history and very clear development of this interest. If you go from doing, you know, nothing to help people to all the next day, all of a sudden you have a nonprofit. I feel like the admissions officer would see that that is not genuine. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to surround it. And I think that's the key. And, you know, 
simply walking. I mean, you could probably find any number of resources online that would tell you or show you how do you start a nonprofit. You could Google it, watch a YouTube video about it, which is what most kids probably would do. As a parent, you could read about it. Um, but it only works if you already have a passion or I hate that. I don't love that word yeah. passion. If you have an interest and a real focus on that and you want to bring that to fruition. So, you know, I not a fan, not a fan. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, okay. This one question for you, Shannon, comes from Jen, and it was submitted via Facebook. Um, can you talk a bit about what happens to in-state and out-of-state tuition if a family moves for a parent to take a new full-time job in a new state close to the time a student will enter college? To make it more complicated, we may be in a position where one child is attending a state school on in-state tuition, then the family moves to a new state, and another child will start will look to start college there within a year of arrival. Such an interesting question. Yeah, and right. <laughs> I think this is the first uh, hashtag it depends answer of the, of the day. Of the day? Okay. Probably not the last time. Every state sets their own in-state tuition policy and every, every state can be different. I would say usually the, this is a little tricky where they say that the, the parent may be moving right before the student mm -hmm. enrolls in college that is tricky timing in my mind for the what i've seen in most states is your residency is classified um when you initially enroll that's where that's the, sort of the timing of, of the move is tricky here it sounds like mm -hmm. um but usually the requirement is you need to have lived in the state or the parents for a dependent student the parents have to have lived in the state in most states it's for at least a year prior to the student enrolling to get that in-state tuition uh, again policies can vary most commonly i've seen once that residency has been determined it's okay if the parents move out of state at that point, as long as the student remains continuously enrolled, they'll keep their in-state tuition. Uh, again, as long as they uh, maintain their enrollment, don't take a leave of absence for a semester because when you come back, then you may be an out-of-state student. That, that's the most common policy I have seen. Uh, but I guess my advice here would be to check the particular state policy of the states in question here. And it sounds like there are two kids and the two potentially two different states involved, the old state and the new state. Yeah. Um, but I would just go to the website of any of the public universities in that state and they will have the tuition policy there. If you can't find the answer to the specific question because the timing is weird, a call or email to the registrar's office should be able to answer that question for you. Yes. Never, never be afraid to pick up the phone and call. Exactly. Uh, the next question for you, Beth, is my daughter is considering switching from a public high school to an online high school. I would be interested to see if anyone on your team has worked with kids in an online high school um, and if they recommend one over another for strong students and if they might be able to speak to us a bit about how college admissions reps view students applying to their college or university coming from an online high school. Um, this student is a rising junior with a 4.0 GPA and intends to audition for BFA acting programs at this point. Right. Okay. 
Um, so I'm going to answer some of this. And then um, what I'm going to do is see if we can't schedule a full podcast segment um, to talk about online high schools, because I don't, we don't have time to get into yeah. all of <laughs> the ins and outs of this question. What I can say is that um, oftentimes the why, you know, why make the switch is a key and important component. And it is, of course, as does everything, right, going to depend. Um, so in general, I would say that, you know, this could be a fine move and many, many, many colleges out there will be totally fine with it. And then there are some colleges that might wonder, you know, look askance at a little bit. Um, interesting to me is that the goal is BFA acting programs. And so I'm going to I'm going to make a leap here and say, I'm wondering if the choice to go from public high school to online high school is because perhaps your daughter is already active. Um, that's something that is not uncommon. So you have a student who is already got a career going, they're already acting, or they're already on stage on Broadway and musical theater, or they're an athlete and they play at a very high level. And so most of their time is spent focusing on playing their sport and at that point, you know, they fit school in around the sport rather mm -hmm. than the other way around. Um, so those are all reasons why I've seen students who, you know, might fare well at any college in the country making the online high school choice. Um, but that's not always the reason why. And it's certainly not going to um, absolutely mean that, like, your choices are going to be less than, but it really will depend on the schools that you're considering or that your daughter's considering. And, um, you know, again, the why. So it is on some level very individual. So, um, but we could do a general podcast about kind of the whole question of online high school and maybe yeah. what some, what we see as good options. And then if you really want to dig into your specific situation, then what I would suggest there is that you might want to go to our website and submit a form and, um, and see if we couldn't set you up for a consult, um, like a paid consult with one of our people who might have more insight into this so that they can learn about your child's specific situation. Um, it's difficult to advise on that without, without only, with basically only knowing yeah. a 4.0 and the goal. So. Yeah, I would guess, and I know we're going to do a whole segment on it, but what springs to mind for me as if I was an admissions officer, which I never have been, so what do I know? But the concern in my mind would be if this student is just staying in their house all day and doing online school and never interacting with people, are they going to fit in on our campus? So I would guess that some evidence in extracurriculars or other things of interacting with a community likely be important in this situation. Yeah, it's not dissimilar from homeschooling. I mean, in some level, yeah. online high school is kind of homeschooling, just a modern version of it. And right. yes, those are things that you look for as sort of evidence of, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people might choose homeschooling, but making sure that the student is socially ready for college and you would look for evidence of that. So um, yes, good call. All right. Shannon, we got another one for you here. And this comes from Kimberly, who's emailed us. How do you report cryptocurrency on the FAFSA? That is a first for me. Yes. <laughs> Lots of new fun questions these days. Yes. And it's actually, I think this one is pretty straightforward. Cryptocurrency would be considered 
an investment on the FAFSA, just like if you owned stocks or bonds or a rental property, like these are all in investments. Um, and so one, I don't know if it's interesting, it's interesting to me as a financial <laughs> aid person, um, a quirk of the FAFSA where is where they ask about income and assets, in, income and assets, excuse me. Um, income is, you know, your income from the prior year, like a year's worth of income for your assets. They are asking for the value of your assets as of today, the day you complete the FAFSA, what are what's sitting in your checking account? What are your stocks worth? What is your cryptocurrency worth? So when you're reporting that investment value on the FAFSA, you would look at your, and there's all sorts of, of very specific newfangled terminology with cryptocurrency. You look at your wallet, the, the, the current value today, if you were to trade this cryptic cryptocurrency, um, what is its value as of today, the day you're filling out the FAFSA? And that is what you would report. Um, obviously, cryptocurrency can be a, a fairly volatile asset. Yes, as so witnessed this week, actually. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, so an issue can arise when the value you reported the day of the FAFSA, my, my crypto is worth $40,000 and today it's worth $500. Yeah. <laughs> That's obviously a, can be a big issue for families. Um, and you can always submit a financial aid appeal if you have you know, a drastic change in your asset value. Um, I will tell you, I would guess in most situations, the appeal won't be successful. And, and that's sort of the reasoning of sort of just drawing the line. What is the value of your assets as of today right. is for something like this that changes every day. They're not going to readjust your financial aid award every day as it changes. Oh, it went down today. Let's give you more financial aid. Oh, but right. it went up the next day. Let's take that financial aid back. You know, they yeah. can't do that. So that's why they kind of draw that hard line as what's the value as of today if things do drop precipitously kind of long-term, theoretically next year's FAFSA, you will have a lower value to report and you might be eligible for additional financial aid next year. Again, you can always attempt an appeal, but be prepared for a no, I, I would say, um, in that kind of situation. But again, just what's the value as of today? That's what's going on the FAFSA as an investment. Good to know. Yeah. Um, the next question for you, Beth, came in through our Facebook page from Kristen. And Kristen asks, I was curious what kinds of things warrant adding to the common application after submitting. A senior year has come and so have some awards, but I'm not sure if this is something she should let the schools know about now that, or let the school know about now that she has already submitted her early decision application. I'm guessing it's okay to add to the common app for other applications that she'll submit in the future in case she doesn't get into this ED school, but does she have to update the early decision school? Right. Um, I think, again, this sort of depends on what the awards are. If they're fairly mm -hmm. run-of-the-mill awards, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some that might come in the fall of senior year and I'm failing for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> and I think that's partially because nothing really impressive typically does come at that time. Um, but if it's a, if it's a significant award, you know, that has maybe like larger implications than just the school. Um, and I know people are going to read into this and say, Ooh, semifinalists in the national merit, <laughs> like, 
Yeah, I don't like you certainly can update the school about something like that. Is that like super important? Not really. Um, I certainly would, I, I think I certainly would update the common app so that it's ready to go with the new awards once um, she hears from the early decision school. If it's, if she has the time right now, you're hearing this is December 1st. I would say at this point, it's probably on the late side to be updating them about anything because decisions should be coming out from an early decision school. Mm -hmm. But if you've applied to any early action schools that might, they might notify at some point in like January or February, certainly you could update them. Um, I think what you have to avoid doing is sending an update weekly. Like, oh, I won this. Oh, this happened. Oh, I have this new thing. So I would really encourage you kind of save them up. Um, If there's anything really significant that then yes, I might um, update the college kind of right now and um, let them know about it. The other thing is if nothing is like truly all that significant in general, I would say this, most honors are not going to be the make or break. You're not going to suddenly find out that they were named the Beth Mass student for the month of October in the school or citizen of the month. And you're going to, that's going to be the thing like, oh, I was on the fence, but now they're citizen of the month. Now they're in, right? right? It doesn't typically work that way. Um But what you can do is you have them saved up. And so then if there's a deferral that happens, so the student doesn't get accepted, but they don't get denied, they are going to wait and make a decision. Those could be a great part of a follow-up to the deferral letter where you say, oh, still really interested. And by the way, since I submitted my application, here are some things that some awards that I've received. Here are some things that I've done since then, whatever it is. So um, so that would be a good place for those. So if it's huge, let them know now. If not, I would save it up and just do an update once you get that early, those early results in. Um, when in doubt, if you really think it might be a big deal, send it. You know, like, again, I <laughs> doubt it's going to be a deal breaker, but I also don't think that um, you're going to harm your chances unless you're sending an update every week or right. more and- frequently. Procedurally, to make an update, is it emailing the admissions It's going to be office? different for every school. Okay. So mm-hmm. some schools, they're going to have their own portal where they will ask you to add any updates to the portal. And that's typically how it's going to get fed to the reader who's looking at your application online. Um, at other schools, it could be simply just an email that you send. And sometimes it's to a general admissions inbox and sometimes to it's to your individual admissions officer. I would say if you have any kind of an application ID that the school has assigned to you, just make sure that it's on there. If you don't, then at the very least, you want to include your full name and your birth date so that they can find you in their files. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for joining today. I just realized we are up against it. So um, appreciate you being here. Appreciate all of our guests. Next week, we are replaying one of our most popular podcasts um, this year from June, application deadline options, securing financing to pay for college and filling out the common app activity section. So don't miss it. And we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.